Hello and welcome to the Cycling Science Podcast. Um, this is episode number four, um, Crash Bang. I'm your host, um, Professor Richard Davison, and as usual, I'll be joined by my two co-hosts, Professor Geraint Florida-James and Dr. Leslie Ingram. In this episode, uh, we review uh, a recent paper on the acute injuries in mountain bikers, um, and those are injuries in both amateur um, and elite uh, riders. Um, Also, I interview uh, Dr. Michael Botlang, who is the inventor of the recently released Bontrager wave cell helmet. Um, This is a, a revolutionary new design. Um, which is, aims to reduce the rotational forces potentially experienced by cyclists in a, in a fall. Um, so I think there's a great insight in the interview in terms of the development and testing around uh, the uh, creation of the wave cell um, technology. As usual, um, we have our news section where we talk about some recent um, uh, cycling science uh, stories in the press. Um, the first of those is the recent uh, press around the physical activity levels of e-bike users compared to normal uh, bike commuters. We also briefly examine uh, a recent paper looking at the long-term Uh, effects of high dosage of vitamin D on bone mineral density and we have a discussion uh, around the recent revelations from um, Yanni Brekovic suggesting that there's a high prevalence of eating disorders in the pro peloton and finally we cover the story around the true story of the cyclist with the highest ever ever VO2 max. So, I hope you enjoy this uh, this episode. Um, Michael? Uh, Michael, is it Botlang? I meant to ask this earlier. Uh, born and raised in Germany, so it would be Botlang, but in America it's Botlang. Oh, okay. Uh, Michael, welcome to uh, the Cycling Time podcast, and thank you very much for uh, agreeing to uh, our interview today. And uh, maybe just to start with, uh, for our listeners, if you could just uh, give us a little bit of a background. Um, Obviously, um, I know you're from the uh, Legacy Research Institute based in Portland. Um, So maybe you could fill in a little bit of details about yourself and, and, and the lab and and what it's what it does and its aims and ambitions. Super, Richard. First of all, thank you for reaching out to me. Uh, I'm born and raised in Germany. Always studied biomechanical engineering. Um, got my PhD in Iowa. Met an orthopedic surgeon with an inherent research interest, and the two of us decided, well, let's start a research lab. And um, we did that in Portland at Legacy Health in 2000. Uh, They gave us the space for that. Um, We were successful in getting funding from the National Institute of Health, and our desire always was to locate an unsolved, identify an unsolved problem 
conduct extensive research, not be guided by our ideas, but just looking at research data, and then if possible, advance those new data into better solutions to either prevent or treat um, uh, trauma. Typically, we worked on uh, bone fractures, how to better treat those. Um, and um, But in 2002, we really got aware of the discrepancy about how helmets are tested and how the brain is most readily injured, which is due to a rapid spin, while the tests didn't account for a spin. So that's when we early on uh, developed a new test facility where we can look at more realistic impacts, record the head spin, and then logically look how could we make helmets better to better absorb these harmful rotational forces. Excellent. That's great. And thank you very much, Michael. Of course, we are, you know, the reason that we're, we're speaking is uh, the, the, the fairly recent uh, launch of Bond's new flow cell helmet and the claims that they make around that. Uh, and that's one of the helmets that, that, that you've tested. So we'll come back to that. But just for a second, obviously, um, in sport, um, you know, there's a variety of sports that have attempted to protect the head um, from impact and uh, I suppose another one that, that, that springs to mind is boxing um, and then certainly in the amateur boxing you know um, head guards and so on are, are worn but of course one of the well-known facts uh, <laughs> around sort of uh, boxing is because it's a weight categorized sport quite often um, the boxers themselves then are, are dehydrating, which doesn't help because it takes away some of that cushioning in the brain. And mm -hmm. uh, then a lot of the damage that we know are the bit worse damage is that rotational damage. So, so it's probably an area that, that you know, is, did require some further research. Yeah, particularly with boxing, um, the rotational forces and the damage can readily be seen if a boxer is hit on a chin which causes head rotation compared to being hit straight on. And once this knock on the chin happens and the head starts to rotate quickly, that's when you have the typical knockout. Now, this is important to be observed on a slow motion uh, video because otherwise this event happens too quickly to be actually seen. Um, these rotational forces, it's almost like an impulse exchange that happens within 15 milliseconds. Um, now, to bring this even a point further, there is a phenomenon of the shaken baby syndrome. So that's not a sport, but uh, that's where a baby's head is never hitting anything. It's just the shaking back and forth that causes these rotational forces that readily distort the brain and can actually lead to death as well. Um, so the the brain is very much protected from a straight hit because the skull is entirely fluid-filled and fluid cannot be compressed. But as soon as I spin the head rapidly, we get shear forces that are harmful. Sure. Of course, um, a little bit unlike uh, boxing, we were kind of hoping in cycling that we're not getting repeated bangs to the head, but clearly um, there is an opportunity for significant um, damage uh, in terms of head injury uh, in the event of the crash and of course you know uh, I'm of an age and I remember well as a, as a young cyclist even a young racing cyclist um, that helmets were not compulsory 
Um, and of course, mm-hmm. you know, through my own cycling career, I've seen them come in, and and of course, uh, they they getting better and better. You know, they used to be the claim, oh, they're too hot and so on, and mm-hmm. and how would this really help? And of course, now, um, you know, many countries legislate and say that you have to wear a helmet when you cycle, and uh, certainly for the racing fraternity, it's legislated um, that you have to wear a helmet. But of course, as you might imagine, um, the technology around that has developed um, significantly so you know uh, and that's really what your research paper focuses on um, so you control three or you investigate three different um, helmets in this particular piece of research which is just fairly recently published in the um, in the journal of uh, accident analysis and prevention and uh, I'll put some notes of this on our, our show notes so that um, some of our listeners can can go away and have a look at this paper themselves. But but maybe you would just want to take us through a second in terms of, you know, the the the, the three types of helmets that that you tested in this uh, particular study. Very good. Uh, so actually, just like you, I grew up not wearing a helmet riding a bike, and today I wouldn't want to ride a bike without a helmet, because the bottom line is any helmet provides a great protection to the head uh, compared to not wearing a helmet. But uh, the big fact is that helmets were originally designed and are still tested to protect from skull fractures. Certainly a bad thing. That's why everyone should wear a helmet. Um, I'm very convicted of that. Um, But can they be made better for brain protection? And I think that's where the rotation suspension comes about. Uh, the call for that dates back way before 2000. Just to name one famous researcher, Dr. Albert King from Wayne State University, stated early on, well, if rotation is the culprit, how optimized is a helmet? Yeah. So the first almost intuitive idea is let's introduce a slip liner. Um, so these are now widely commercially available. And uh, so... Th- we tested in our publication a standard EPS helmet, how they have been on the market since 25, 30 years. It's the standard expanded foam EPS helmet that's in-mold into a micro shell. Then we tested that very same helmet with a slip liner that's commercially available, both versions. And then we modified the helmet and instead of a slip liner, used the three-dimensional wave cell matrix, we call it a cell matrix, uh, by now it is commercially available under the brand name WaveCell from Bontrager, and we basically just compared the helmet performance at three different impact angles, uh, 30, 45, and 60 degrees, because there's controversy, what's the average angle we fall, and there's no average angle, we all fall different, so as a researcher, we try to get our heads around it, just test the range. And we also tested two impact velocities, a slower and a faster one, the faster being um, 6.2 meters per second. Um, And um, for each impact, we recorded a range of uh, forces to the head, such as the uh, linear acceleration and the rotational forces. And these are physical recordings. And then those recordings we then put into a computer program we then also can predict uh, the risk of concussion. Of course, the more we predict, the more assumptions are in this. Um, 
So um, research always needs to simplify with the attempt not to oversimplify. And we just thrive to measure a range of conditions and report a range of data to get advanced signs. So just a second, just to help our, our listeners a little bit, and you can jump in here if I've... Um, you know, I can look at the pictures in your paper, but uh, misinterpreted the the uh, testing setup. So basically, you know, you attach the uh, the helmets to a, a, a prosthetic uh, head that's got um, a, presumably a, a, the neck portion of this has got loads of sensors mm -hmm. uh, built into this, and this is attached to a real a vertical real mechanism. So basically, the whole system is like a drop system so it goes to a certain height we'll drop down onto you've call it an anvil but we can mm -hmm. call it the ground uh, for all mm -hmm. intents and purposes and and you adjust the angle of that ground and that's where you get the, the three uh, angles of 30 45 and, and, and 60 um, so then you can make uh, through your analysis you can understand uh, the impact forces and the rotational forces because you have that instrumented neck element mm -hmm. to the head is that is that where most of the instrumentation is or is there also stuff built into the actual prosthetic head as well yeah thank you for uh, clarifying how we test so in a lab it's all about we want to enforce the same impact over and over so I can look at different helmets and whatnot. And that's why we use this free fall onto uh, a ground. And what we use the head and neck is actually what the automotive industry uses and calls it crash test dummies. So it's a metallic head form that in weight corresponds to the weight of an uh, average size adult. Uh, and the neck uh, is also from that crash test dummy. It's called a hybrid three neck. Um, and the instrumentation is uh, two sets of instrumentation. One is inside the head to really measure the forces that the brain would see. And the other one is at the base of the neck to measure neck loading. So that's very independent. So I think for this podcast, we might want to focus just in what we measured inside the head. So and and just uh, I'm curious then uh, you know you, so um, yes in the lab you need to standardise stuff and you've you've just done a range of, of three different angles and, and one could see how those you know could be um, uh, applied to a real live uh, accident scenario on a bicycle the the two speeds are they uh, are they standards or is they is that something that comes uh, from actual evidence or I'm just mm -hmm. curious. So excellent question. Uh, research always seeks to um, stick with what researchers did before so we can compare. So our slow and high speed are the two speeds that are used in most standard impact tests for bicycle helmets. For example, the US standard CPSC, Consumer Protection Safety Commission, uh, they have the slower speed when the helmeted head form falls on a non-flat surface. It can be a curbstone, a hemisphere, and then for a flat impact surface, they also test the higher speed and we use those same speeds. How do they correlate to bicycling? When I bike to work this morning, I probably go about twice as fast. Now, the other part that matters, um, speed is only half of the equation. Uh, it's the impact energy. So um, if I have twice the weight that drops at the same speed, 
I probably get about twice the helmet damage. And then the government tests typically only drop a head form itself, so just the weight of the head. If I fall this morning on my way to work, which I hopefully don't, uh, it is more than just the weight of my head. Uh, and I think that's where our neck comes in. Uh, the head, neck, and attachment, we reach about two to three times the energy at impact compared to a government test standard. And when I then look at my helmet damage, it tends to be more than what I see with a standard test where only a head form is used. And it tends to be a lot closer to, if I look at helmets that have been retrieved from exo bicycle accidents where you can see cracks in the foam liner and so on so um uh, as a researcher i feel that um, the added mass of the neck really helps us to have more realistic impact conditions sure so let's just move a little bit to the the helmets themselves so obviously an epf helmet as you've just sort of hinted there is you know the the the, the way that it works is that it basically breaks and thus dissipates some of the energy um this the the one with the slip liner then that um i suppose uh, adds a further cushioning through that sort of basket type slip mechanism just between your head um and the helmet and then the wave cell um so maybe you might just want to describe for our listeners a little bit you know what what does that look like you know i'm sure some people you know listening will have already seen the helmet but just you know how does that react differently um that's an excellent question i want to go one step back a slip liner was intended to mitigate the rotational force where you just basically slip away and we tried that early in 2002 and uh, it certainly has a beneficial protective effect at lower impact energies but with a more realistic impact where the force when you hit the ground is big that slip liner tends to hang up um, and that's like anything slippery you can imagine you put a lot of weight on it and it doesn't slip anymore it slips milliseconds after the initial impact but that's when the rotational impulse already has been transferred to the brain. And believe me, we tried for several years to make those slip liners more slippery, more whatever we could do. But being researchers, we didn't see the big improvement in the data. And the more energy we put into impact, the harder hits, uh, it just got hung up. So we really became to the uh, we we became aware that. We need something three-dimensional, not just a slip liner. And so the next step, of course, is a honeycomb. Honeycomb materials are very good, very effective in absorbing a linear impact. Unfortunately, commercially available honeycombs are all made basically for structural panels. Think of an airplane wing. And they're very strong in shear. They should never fail in shear. That plane would go down. So we recognized after testing literally every commercially available honeycomb we could find that we need to develop a new honeycomb structure from scratch that is behaves the same for a straight impact but for an oblique impact like a realistic one it needs to be soft in shear and that's where um, this cell structure we tested it actually has in every cell a little wrinkle that makes it actually soft in shear and now at an impact at the very first millisecond 
that wave cell can fold on itself and that initiates the sliding and then the whole because it's a one piece suspension that can then basically compress almost like an accordion and absorb additional energy um, the physics of impact mechanics is rather complicated and I think that's why we made a funny video I first actually said I will not do that to my research partner because he said let's put like raw egg yolks inside a head model and see what it does to it and I'm like I'm not doing that <laughs> and um, we finally actually ended up doing that and it's now on the website of our uh, product wavecell.com I don't want to advertise that too much but uh, whenever I showed a computer model that worked it didn't touch people because I, I don't believe a computer model until I have physical data but that untouched slow motion of this raw egg yolk video really shows how um, a straight impact does very little to the brain because it's fluid filling incompressible a rotational impact will readily disrupt egg yolks and with the wave cell those egg yolks completely survive a harsh impact um, we also did that same video uh, with slip liners and again, that we couldn't protect the egg yolks from breaking. I'm not sure if you had a chance to, to look at that video. No, I haven't. I, I thank you very much for alerting me to it. I will go and have a look, you know, and I think mm -hmm. it's, um, I know you said uh, to me earlier, you know, one of your uh, aims of the sort of the Legacy Research Institute is, is, you know, is the translation and trying to get that research, you know, understood by, by the public and so on. So I think that's a really good example of, of mm -hmm. you know, doing that. And uh, so, so well done, even though you were reluctant <laughs> to start with. <laughs> so, you know, I think we've gone through in terms of the, the methodology and, and the different helmets now. So, but certainly the results that you've had, uh, the measuring, the sort of, so there is a standard, isn't that right? There's a standard for uh, brain injury uh, from rotational forces. So, so you've used that and then been able to compare um, the control helmet which is your EPS to to your slip and, and in particular with the wave cell so so those were dramatic really dramatic reductions in in the that that standard which is a, a brain damage maybe you just want to um, give us an idea um, of how much yeah I would like to comment a little bit on that I wish there would be a standard unfortunately there or actually fortunately there's a big range of research groups that all try to wrap their hands around how does loading of the head like an impact correlate to the amount of brain injury or the risk of brain injury the predicted risk so there's a bunch of different equations um, some of them look only at linear acceleration the straight hit um, we know today I think there's agreement in the research field that we need to look at the rotational accelerations and forces because they are actually the dominant reason for brain injury. Um, and then there are different um, equations that correlate those rotational forces to the likeliness of a concussion. So the most solid data I would say we have is the measurement of the rotational forces in terms of rotational acceleration to our head form in an impact and there we could see that um, having a cell 
cellular insert, like the wave cell, reduce the rotational forces by um, 73%. So that's uh, compared to a standard helmet without a rotational suspension. So um, this is really the improvement that we wanted to see. If you go through the effort and integrate an anti-rotation system or a rotation damping system inside a helmet, we really wanted to see a large improvement. So 73% decrease in those rotational forces, that's a solid data point. I have to say up to up to 73% because at different angles and speeds, we get different results. Um, the results were always slower for the um, wave cell helmets, but up to 73%, and we measure that at the 45 degree impact angle at the faster 6.2 meters per second impact, uh, that's about 14 miles per hour. I'm guessing it's about like uh, 20 kilometers per hour or so. Um, so I think that's a very relevant middle of the road impact condition. Now, if I then go one step further and interpret that decrease in rotational force, what it could mean to the concussion risk we use the fairly commonly used um, BRIC equation that stands for Brain Injury Criteria. Where that was derived from instrumented helmets, uh, football helmets, where they recorded many players over several years and got a good number of concussive events, concussions that happened. And then they could literally download the, the head forces during that impact. And that gave the correlation between what does the rotational force mean to the brain injury risk? And if I use that equation at that same impact scenario, a standard helmet um, had a uh, injury risk of 56%, while if we integrated the wave cell, we had only a 1.2% um, risk of predicted risk of concussion. And that really gave us this dramatic reduction in the predicted injury risk so you know it's, it's a nice piece of research that really shows um you know a, a step change which is always nice to to have in terms of uh you know a new a new technology and development so you know really it's uh, fairly uh clear that um you know that certainly the wave cell has the potential to make very significant uh, differences to you know the rotational forces and thus the potential um risk of of a concussive event so brilliant i think that's that's a fantastic piece of research and a lovely story around how you you, you got there and uh, and the sort of drive behind it um so uh, thank you very much you know is there you know where's the, where's the next thing is can we cuz am i right in saying then that maybe um the, the nature of the wave cell is also quite good in terms of just the direct hits and not rotational forces because clearly, you know, the, 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 how does it perform? Because is the EPS, I've not actually had one of these helmets in my hand, so I don't know, is the EPS slightly thinner? Or can we afford to be slightly thinner to, because you've now got um, your cell matrix, which helps to dissipate some yeah. of the... Excellent question. So... Um, as a researcher, I want to make a helmet as thick as possible, and you can dampen a lot more, but it would never make it into a consumer product. So we needed to keep uh, the weight, the thickness, all of that 
just in the same ballpark than a regular helmet. So actually the thickness is identical. In that study specifically, we carved out 15 millimeter of EPS and replaced it of that foam and replaced it with 15 millimeter of that cellular wave cell material. Uh, linearly, it actually does improve performance as well. Um, not so dramatically, but I mean, a cellular material really has some benefits, the structural controlled arrangement compared to EPS bubbles, which are still very, very good. Um, but rotationally, we see that, that, that huge improvement. Yeah, but yeah, the overall thickness is the same. Brilliant. Michael, thank you very much uh, for your time. I know certainly I've enjoyed this conversation very much. Um, I feel I've learned uh, a lot, um, and I'm sure our listeners will feel that they have uh, learned a lot. Um, I know some of them are obviously looking at these new helmets coming out onto the market, and uh, you know I'm hoping that this this interview gives them a little bit more of a background and understanding uh, behind the development of the helmet. So um, thank you very much for your time. Um, Richard, thank you so much. Just as a closing here, I do want to state as a scientist, like a picture tells more than a thousand words. So if you just want to uh, look up on the internet, wave cell and then egg video, and I'm sure that video will pop up and it will teach more than I could possibly describe to you. So with that, thanks again um, for spending that time with me and for your good work with the podcast. Thank you. What we'll do, we'll definitely put it up on our show notes, uh, the link to uh, to the video, because I'm sure, uh, say, our listeners will find that um, very interesting indeed. So, again, thanks for your time. Thank you, and have a good day. Bye. Right. That's Right, um, we're just going to cover, uh, you know, in this episode, uh, which is relevant to the to the other interview um, that we've uh, recorded, uh, looking at the the wave cell um, helmet. Um, so, you know, this is, uh, I think, quite a relevant research article because it's looking at acute injuries in uh, male elite and amateur uh, mountain bikers. Um, the lead author is Rachel. Stoop, and it's published in the uh, Journal of Sports Science and Medicine uh, in the, this year. Um, so basically, um, it's a questionnaire-based um, study, and looking at the the prevalence and some of the nature of injuries in a in a group of of mountain bikers. So this is a group of mountain bikers who. Um, were taking part in the Swiss epic uh, mountain bike event in 2017. So it's 99 questionnaires that were included for the final analysis. Um, as might be expected in a lot of uh, mountain bike events, there's a range of um, participants, competitors, um, so ones that could be named as more elite and some that would be uh, deemed as, as amateur. So I suppose one of the first findings on the very basic level about prevalence um, of injury, um, they conclude that the prevalence is pretty similar for elites and amateurs, 74% um, for elites and 69% and for amateurs, which I suppose is quite 
high for any sport, you know, if that's the prevalence of injuries. And we, but we do know mind bone biking does have its fair share of, uh, particularly when you start to compete anyway, uh, its fair share of, of injuries. Um, so they seem to suggest that even though obviously the characteristics of the elites and the amateurs are, are slightly different, so the amateurs again have been slightly older, um, although they've got a similar amount of experience um, and less uh, time actually cycling in terms of hours per week and races and so on, uh, there's big differences. So the, if you like the exposure rate in particular for the elite riders is much higher um, than, than the amateurs. So Are you any about the nature of this event as well, Leslie. Right. Yeah, so there's um, five different types of racing within that. So um, two of the races are five-day stage races, but they have uh, differing lengths. Um, and then there's some that are more uphill or downhill or more flowy. Um, so I guess that attracts different riders as well because when you actually get into the numbers that they actually measured who reported injuries, the number goes down even further to 56. And within that, there were only 15 elites and 41 amateurs. Mm-hmm. So again, starts to bring in a bit of... Um, still still high percentages, that's the thing. So yeah. it could be, I'd be interested to see why it's such high percentages. So, you know, Richard knows that we've done some work with Enduro World Series, uh, particularly with... Our, our own injury uh, specialist and endocrinologist associate professor um, Debbie Palmer, and just from some of the stats on that, if you look at what was recorded for injury rates for the XC mountain bike events at Rio, it was down to twenty three point eight percent. So the percentages we're looking at here are really quite high, and then for for season of the WS for ten of those races, we're or what you would expect potentially is even higher than that, is lower at eight point nine percent of the riders that studied uh, that were studied, and that's a huge that's a huge study. So these these numbers are are quite high, but then it again is then the definition that we're discussing prior to this week piece is the definition of the injuries as well, what constitutes an injury, and also then getting the as I say the people when it's been um, recorded etc. and how it's recorded, and again that, that it's high percentages. That we're looking at there, um, much more than you would see in some of the other sports like rugby, etc. as well, which you might think it'd be you know, uh, more potential for injury. Hmm. Again, I think it's uh, interesting to look at the contrast uh, in terms of between the elites and amateurs, in terms of even where the injuries occur. Um, so, for some reason, you know, the amateurs seem to have. Um, Arguably a lot more, um, I suppose, upper body, sort of shoulder uh, and upper arm and, and head injuries, um, certainly compared to the elites, whereas the elites are a bit more prone to knee and calf injuries. Um, interesting. I'm not sure specifically why there would be that sort of contrast, although they did. Yeah, because for us in, in, in the EWS, when you're well, serious, when you're, it's shoulder you know, shoulder and, and collarbone injury said where people are going down. And when you're looking at this, what, what's coming through with this one, particularly the leads, it's uh, is knee and calf region. And I think that's a testament as well to the differences in, in the, the races that we're looking at here, etc. Even though there are definitely some technical 
parts of this this event, etc. But again, it's 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 interesting that it is around the knee and the cap for the uh, say for your uh, the differential between the two sets, amateurs and and, and elites. Mm-hmm. I was also just looking there in the paper units. Uh, you know, we I, I don't know whether these races are particularly uh, tough or uh, technically, but um, it says in the amateurs sixty. 3.4% of all injuries were severe. In other words, bone fracture, or 34%, joint injury, 24%, concussion, 4.9%. So 34% fracture, that's, that's a big, you know, amount. You know, that's, that seems to be a lot of fractures. This, these numbers are big. This, these, are, these are huge numbers, as I said, and I go back to the nature of, of, of where it is and what it is that they're doing. And so I was asking Leslie about when you're looking at the, the actual types of racing amateurs being asked to do it, etc. With the Enduro World Series, the numbers are so much lower, but by the nature of what it is, it's a demanding sport, etc. And people tend to go there who have actually developed a, a level of competency, perhaps. And when you're seeing this with the with the amateurs, it's like, wow, that those, those are scary numbers. As a, as a parent, if I'm looking at that as a sport, I'm going, okay, maybe I won't let my daughter go and do that. Because those numbers are, you know, when you look mm-hmm. at it in, in respect of other, other sports. So, very interesting. Yeah. The formats can also be contested individually or in team formats. So I wonder if that maybe sometimes heightens the risk of that if people are trying to work really hard, take mm-hmm. maybe risks that they wouldn't necessarily uh, mm-hmm. normally take if they're working in a team environment. Yeah. On the amateur level. Mm-hmm. And of course, the other thing that they do report is some difference in terms of protective gear. Um, and while there seems to be a lot of similarity in terms of, sort of gloves I wear and helmet, there does seem to be some differences when we look at upper and lower armour. Um, so, with the amateurs tending to have a, a more uh, protective uh, gear, however, you know, they're still reporting quite high levels of uh, injury so it's uh, yeah absolutely but uh, but also you know they, they, the authors themselves acknowledge you know within their discussion the difference again uh, within their numbers compared to some others that have been published and potentially due to difference in injury definition mm. sorry, injury definition uh, and, and again that then can re- transfer to having some, some bigger numbers in there yeah I suppose the you know what we try to do with a lot of these papers is sort of look at you know sort of take away messages and you, mm. unfortunately I, I don't believe that the questionnaire they've used um, would uh, help in, in uh, to guide say coaches and, and, and sports scientists that much. Um, now, although they do kind of hint at one bit, they say that the finding that amateurs suffered bone fractures of the shoulder region may be explained by falling over the, the handlebars. Yeah. An awful lot of that's around technique and, and, and skill level. And so I suppose that's the aspect is, you know, is, um, you know, what prior training, what coaching have these riders had? And it would have been nice to have 
had some of that type of data to try and assess, you know, what's the capability of these riders and, you know, uh, what typically was the cause of the, the reason they ended up injuring themselves and thus then, you know, they would start to think of, you know, where's the education, where's the intervention here that you could try and minimise and, and, and cut down this number of injuries. Because the reality is, you know, with good coaching and so on, it shouldn't happen. You know, there's always going to be a certain amount you know, you make a mistake, you get tired, your judgment's impaired. Um, but, um, you know, I think with good coaching, we should be able to eliminate... You'll, get, you'll, you'll definitely get better, but the stats here are, are quite big. You know, if I was a, an event organiser looking at that and seeing the, you know, the high percentage of those injuries, so we've got a high percentage of injuries, and a high percentage of those injuries, you know, they need actual treatment, medical treatment, I'm like, okay, well... So as a as an event organisation, what's going on? Does this sit well within the what's out there in terms of numbers? And potentially not is my answer to that one. And then go so I go. What would be the suggestion? So like in terms of practical applications of this data, I would like maybe to see you know what would the authors suggest that could be that the the organisers could do, or there's a potential to ensure that this these numbers don't you know mm. happen again because. They are, you know, again, they are quite high numbers when you look at them compared to some of the other the, the data that's out there. I think you yeah. um, highlighted it earlier as well. You know, at the end of the paper, the, the authors do acknowledge that to some extent, and they talk about um, the fact the tool that they used was a questionnaire, and they were asking people to recall these injuries. Um, whereas maybe if they'd done more in depth um, interview techniques with them and actually teased out exactly what was happening. So they've got cases where medical assistance was required, but they might not necessarily know what that medical assistance was. Hmm. And it could have just been something very minor or something yeah. very severe. Yeah. But I think this is something that uh, obviously, as Gent mentioned earlier, we were going to come back to because uh, Debbie Palmer has, you know, he's got uh, data that's, that's currently been written up and, and submitted for publication. As soon as that comes out, we... We'll get Debbie in for a, a detailed interview as she really is an expert in this area and uh, might be able to give us a, a bit more of a Yeah, just not just in terms insight. of like, like her, you know, her profile is uh, through some really near all the big sports, etc. So having a, a big, the big, I think I'm looking forward to that, uh, that discussion with her and uh, to go back and just revisit some of these numbers and stuff as well to, see, to take, get her take on this as well. That'd be good. Yeah, be great. Okay, guys, uh, let's have a little look at uh, some of the most uh, recent news um, that's uh, been coming up in the sort of cycling world, particularly in the cycling science world. And I suppose one of the things um, that has uh, come up fairly recently has been quite popular in the general press is, a, is an article by uh, quite a large uh, European group, which is uh, part of the... Uh, PASTA Consortium, which uh, is Physical Activity um, and Sustainable uh, Transport uh, Consortium. Uh, the lead author is Castro, and he's really just trying to uh, look at e-bikes and the, um, the difference or the, what does the profile in terms of physical activity of, a, of, of an e-bike uh, user like versus... Uh, a normal cyclist who, who's using 
Um, this is a, a mode of transport, active transport. Um, I suppose it's in the back of uh, much uh, more um, uh, use and availability of uh, e-bikes. Uh, Garrett, you've just recently come back from, from Eurobike. Uh, was there any e-bikes there? <laughs> there was a lot of e-bikes at Eurobike. A uh, great number of e-bikes, but also cargo bikes, etc. Uh, I was invited to sit on an expert panel and we had a discussion around uh, future transport and whether the bike is, is, is the solution. It's definitely part of the solution. We were, we were definitely agreed on that. But there's other solutions and parts of it as well, particularly around micro-mobility and uh, micro-scooters, even e-cars, etc. So there's a lot of interest in that and, and the industry are really interested as we move forward in this area because it's a growth area and they know as an industry that uh, they can supply uh, the demand that, that's, that's being pushed through so from likes of uh, some of the, the major cities which are trying to uh, look at different ways of operating within the environment in terms of transportation of people, transportation of goods etc. And you can see that reflected in the industry itself at, at uh, Eurobike. So it was really interesting from that point of view. And as I said to you earlier, when we had a wee chat before we started this, I stand without any form of e-bike or e-bike technology. Felt old. Uh, and felt like they were um, not quite with it in terms of the, the development, even of the bikes that were there. Because you, you were bombarded all the time with new technologies and that kind of came across it. Again, I went away feeling that's actually affected me because there were so many stands with e-bikes. When you saw them without it, it was like, oh, why don't we have an e-bike? So it's an interesting um, change in a move within the, within the industry itself. Of course, it's, you know, one of the things is that, you know, the, the bikes themselves and the technology has advanced greatly. So, you know, as before, it was big, heavy batteries and, you know, clunky interfaces and so on. You know, I think that's obviously one of the things that's improved a lot is, is the rideability of, the, of these things and, and the utility of them. So I think that's why they're becoming... Uh, more popular. Still quite expensive, although, um, and I suppose that then does um, limit it to a more affluent uh, market. One of the concepts we were discussing as well when we were there is that if we are going to move people in the cities differently to how we are now, then we're moving from an, a, like an owner ownership market to a sharing market. And then with that, then it's, it's about doing, it's, it's more the connectivity, the, the data that needs to connect the bikes as in how much of the battery is left, where is the bike, etc., who's using, utilising it, etc., how can it be picked up. And so it's not about the bike, it's about then shared ownership. So people have to get used to the idea of not owning vehicles, etc. Then, you know, there's actually, where do they go? So in Edinburgh, where we are now, we have a lot of tenement buildings, uh, similar to flats, what was shot, you know, with really steep stairs, and, and, and etc. How do we then make sure that people have still got access to, to uh, transport and shared facilities in those areas. There's not a lot of room sometimes outside. There's a road, but like that a lot. Where do you park all those bikes, etc.? How do people access? So there's lots of issues that when we came up with the panel and, and the end of it, it's like particularly around designing of cities, etc. So it's not that you know, we're all just going to jump on the e-bikes. We can't do that. 
A because there's a price, but it's where are they all going to go. Uh, and then the other part of it, just to touch on, which uh, from our other hat, myself and Les, in terms of the bike centre of Scotland, in terms of innovation. Well, like, yes, we've got battery technology at the minute, but what's happening to those at the end of life? And where are the, the actual resources that build those batteries coming from? There's only a, a certain amount of that within the world. So it's then trying to look at different ways of powering as opposed to the, the iron batteries we have at the minute. So there's lots of opportunities, you know, saying we're only going to see them getting better and lighter with more people taking, uh, um, you know, taking to, the, to the streets with uh, e-bikes and micro, all of them, they all use the same kind of battery technology. Mm-hmm. So it's going to be interesting as we, as we move forward, particularly from uh, transport and urban transport. And then we'll see how that then pans into some people trying to, uh, will that bring more people into cycling itself? I'm not so sure yet. I think there's also a, like, a really key element in there in our perception of ownership. So we all like to have our own bike that, you know, that we put into our sheds or into our stairwell. And actually, is that what the future looks like? So when you go down to London now, there's at least two brands that are running e-bikes and they're just left on the street. Um, and you just log on in your app and you can go and find them mm-hmm. and up, unlock them that way. And is that what the future mm-hmm. looks like? So instead of, we almost have schemes where, well, it's already working, isn't it? And if, if we're thinking about lack, lacking of space and prices of products, is that mm-hmm. a way forward for us to utilise these in a better way? And interesting then, you have your micro-mobility people coming in as well and that organisation and they're going, well, first take up less room, we can have them anywhere. So I was in Brussels for a meeting recently and it was just, they were everywhere, you know, e-scooters. Mm-hmm. You know, and yeah. then they bring their own problems in there, people will say, but so it's not just uh, cycling, but in terms of what we're looking at in the city and, and this, you know, people at, at the Eurobike, it's all about the bike, obviously, and they're saying, well, on a, an e-scooter, you're, you're, you're much more passive, you're not getting what we're talking about here in this, in this new piece is that you're not getting that same amount of physical activity that you would do on an e-bike where you have to actually still physically pedal and be involved in it. So there's some nice work out, you know, basically if you can get someone on an e-bike, it's better having them on an e-bike than not doing anything mm, yeah. in terms of physical activity, I think, and that's what this paper is talking about. Yeah, I think, you know, obviously it's quite a big study this you know there's 10,000 participants over seven European cities and you know Leslie mentioned uh, London in terms of availability and I know I've fairly recently been in Prague and you know the micro scooters and and e-bikes and stuff are all you know evident there and so on but you know this is people who are using it in terms of um, active transport so back and forward um, to work Um, I think you know as, as all pieces of research we have to look at you know well there's caveats in terms of what the message is from the research and, and clearly around affordability and so on and um, I suppose acceptability, you know, this group with this 10,000 actually would be deemed as a fairly affluent group, you know, the vast majority, over 70% of them have a university degree and so on. So that does, you know, link it to a higher socioeconomic uh, group. Nevertheless, I suppose the question, the research question that they were posing here was, you know, uh, what you were kind of alluding to, Garrett, was do, uh, if you have an e-bike, does that mean that you're actually less active? 
you know, as your physical activity, because we, we, we are interested in the level of physical activity for, for health reasons. And, and of course, that's what kind of comes out here is that, you know, the, the basic punchline is that those folk who had e-bikes were more active. Um, and that's partly because many of them had a normal bike as well, which they also seemed to use. So if you add up in terms of the amount of energy expenditure, um, then uh, the e-bikers uh, obviously had more energy expenditure, which is, which is quite important. So... I think as well is you know also looks at you know the amount of time and the number of um, uh, journeys and so on within this group because they have a lot of fairly detailed information in terms of baseline and then follow up in detail in terms of their physical activity. Um, you know I, I think for me some of the interesting bits that were drawn out was the fact that obviously. You know, the advantage of the e-bike, isn't it, you can go much further. So for folk who might have already decided that, um, you know, the, the, it's a bit far for them to uh, to to go to um, um, commute to work on a normal bike because um, it's a fair percentage faster um, on an e-bike um, with the help that maybe people who had already decided that it was too far, that they now decide, actually, I can do this. This is within my scope. It's in the time scale that I've got available, you know, to go to and from work. So I think that's quite an interesting concept as well. Uh, yeah, it definitely is, and that's the advantage, I suppose, of, of the e-bike, and particularly in areas where it may be a bit hillier. Then the advantage of the e-bike becomes that, that bit more, uh, say, increased or multiplied. Uh, and, and and by then doing that, then they are actually going further. So then the amount of time that they they, they will actually travel for in, in an active form becomes more, and then it's uh, and more equivalent to what they would be doing in a, on a normal bike in in terms of the shorter distances they would have done before, etc. Or would have even thought about doing because it's they just I think as we move forward with everything, it, it's time time demands on people. So if you can you know give them a, a a short amount of time in terms of that commute or an equivalent amount of time that they may put on a public transport or on a car, then they would consider it. Mm. And then they would get their health benefits that are over and above potentially what they may have done or considered maybe once a week, maybe trying to pedal in if it's a longer distance, particularly from rural areas. What about the impact of infrastructure in that? What do you think about that? I still feel like it's great the technology is driving it. But where is that infrastructure coming from to help um, convert maybe the people that we're trying to target with this sort of exercise? So getting people who maybe aren't cyclists, who aren't used to being road mm. users, mm. to actually convert them to want to go onto an e-bike to get those health benefits in a safe manner. Or, or just to tempt them initially. Absolutely. That's the thing. So to, just to get them to try it. So... Uh, Anybody that's actually tried an e-bike, you know, everybody that's been on an e-bike with me and they've tried an e-bike has the same response. And I'm talking about e-bike bikes in particular. They've got a big smile on their face going, oh. But it also feels like a normal bike, but you get this bit of assist, etc., which is fine. But it's just getting them to that point. And then if you're taking a transient population of people that are, like, always been in the car, if they come in from areas, etc., or buses and stuff, train, then it's then trying to change them and it's trying to give them that opportunity. 
part of it will be infrastructure for sure and, and, and that's when you have to look at not short-term planning within the city so it's like 2030 that type of thing what do you want from your city and then we have to start thinking about that now and doing that because there's, there's even the legal yeah. aspect because I know there's been in the press lots of stuff around the scooters in particular um, that you know, scooters are not allowed in the pavement and they're not allowed in the road. So where are you supposed to use your e-scooters? That's, that's the law in this country. Um, while, you know, there is recognition within um, transport groups that actually, you know, this is part of the solution to cut down car use. However, at the moment, there isn't a legal framework for it. And, and there, you know, there are restrictions which do vary across Europe in terms of the e-bikes as well, in terms of the speed they can go at and so on. And so there is, there is a, there's a lot of... Complications. Yeah, there absolutely is, and when you know, back to Eurobike, one of the things that was that was um, the leaders in cycling, business leaders in cycling, etc., which was organised by um, uh, the ECF, so European Cyclist Federation and CIE in particular, cyclists and cycling industries Europe, and it was a discussion. It's always a lot of discussion around these um, parts around e-bike or bike use, etc., and the number of bikes that can be sold. So that's where the industry was there and interested in it as well. But it's also about incentivizing people as well. So there's still talk about you know adding VAT, etc., or charging someone at a tax to use an e-bike. Whereas your company car, etc., and then there's tax incentive for people to have company cars are going. Hmm, if you want people to go and use bikes, etc., you need to start looking at ways and means of incentivizing them, etc., as well. So particularly people like ECF and European Cyclist Federation, they're working hard in Brussels to ensure that that isn't the case that we try and. Incentivize people to go on the bike, etc., as opposed to like the car. The car still wins at this minute in mm. time. So infrastructure is for the cars. Infrastructure is what we need to then check and change that. Sea really change, I think. Yeah, it's a really good point as well. If we just look at um, our business, our workplaces, and we have cycle to work schemes, and the upper limit for many of those is a thousand pounds. So could you actually even purchase an e-bike in that frame? You can, but, but potentially not maybe like the three of us here would want to, <laughs> we would want to then be able to use yeah. as well. E even things like parking, etc. Sure. You know, yeah. it's like giving them a parking, you know, you've got a parking space, etc. Working on, you don't give people more spaces, but they can have a bike space or something, or, mm. or as, as we know, cells. Uh, here is about trying to ensure that people have somewhere safe to put their bike, etc. Somewhere they can get showered if they need me, etc. Now, the whole point of an e-bike is we shouldn't need that share option, hmm. potentially, so people can come in fresh and into work. But it's, it's about infrastructure and changing infrastructure at centre for people and hmm. getting that mindset that people can do this. It's, it's easy for them. So I think we've got an awful... Well, you know, this is a good paper because it kind of indicates to us, certainly on the, the sort of, I suppose... Uh, general health aspect of doing more enough physical activity. However, there's an awful lot that, you know, this group clearly are what we would deem as early adopters. They're an affluent early adopter yeah. group. There's an awful lot that we don't know yet really about them uh, and so on. And how do we get more of the population to potentially shift who, who wouldn't have done it in the past and, and laws and infrastructure and everything, I think, are, are going to be sort of part of that. So it's kind of, I think, watch this space a little bit and see. The last one I would stick in there as well is also around um, the, the rural problems of, of, of living in rural areas. And if we look at Edinburgh, a lot of people will commute into Edinburgh, etc. Um, for us, in, in where we are in, in the borders, there's no train option for us, etc. So it's like, and there's there are bike, there are buses that will take bikes now, but there's 
and only a couple of bags and you cannot be sure that if I'm going to work there's going to be an option to get a bag. So then it's, it's then how do we do that in terms of the sharing mm. part of it as well. So even that needs to be think or thought, thought mm. through as well and that's an interesting concept for me because I will drive so far up and then I'll jump out of the bike and I can ride in. So it's that con- integration isn't it? Yeah, I know it, it is yeah. a big issue in, yeah. in, in transport but so I'm trying to look at those links. Um, Okay, guys, let me, let's just uh, move on to uh, another um, news item. And, and this comes around a, a very recent paper by uh, Bert uh, et al. And say just released in the last couple of weeks uh, or published. And uh, this is looking at the effects of high-dose vitamin D supplementation on uh, volumetric bone density and bone uh, strength. Um, actually, a very interesting paper really because they, they, you know, it was a good sample size because they had over 300 um, healthy adults, just over half of them were male. Um, an older age group, um, they were in their 60s, um, which is probably more relevant in terms of uh, bone density because although saying that, you know, this is a topic that we covered in, in, in our very first podcast where we were looking at issues around bone density and energy deficit. So it's important for cyclists. Cyclists are known to have lower bone density. So I suppose the, the research question that they addressed here was if you supplement um, at four different levels, which they did in term, with vitamin D, how will that impact on uh, your bone density? Of course, we need to bear in mind that there's an awful lot more that's involved in bone density uh, rather than just the amount of vitamin D that you get. Um, so, um, but taking that into context, they had uh, four different dosages of uh, vitamin D, that's 400, 4,000 and 10,000 international units per day over a three-year period. And then they measured their, their bone density. The interesting thing here is that actually um, the bone density, there was, there was a dose response, but the dose response was actually in the reverse direction that you might think. So the highest um, supplementation uh, with vitamin D led to the lowest or the sorry the largest reduction in bone density because this group you would expect bone density to be going down anyway um, uh, so it had the largest more than double uh, the reduction in bone density over the three year period so um, and somewhat uh, a little bit of surprising uh, finding and certainly important in terms of potential advice that we might give uh, in terms of, uh, you know, supplementation. It's not always more is better, is it? I think we see that in a lot of things. So, that, you know, when we saturate the body in something, it doesn't always result in a positive impact. Um, definitely needs further research, I would suggest, just to um, try and pick out a little bit more detail about what's actually happening and why. Um, we're seeing that decrease in bone density and um, I'd be interested to see what um, sort of physical activity those individuals were doing as well and whether it was weight bearing or not weight bearing and um, whether that was playing a part in any of that mm. too. From my point of view, I always think that, that we stick some in the head as a very good friend, a professor of toxicology once said to me, anything can become a toxin. 
if you take too much of it. Water, for instance, we all think, you know, we all know water is very important, but if you take too much water, etc., then it becomes a, it also becomes a toxin. And, becomes, uh, and that's problematical and, and when you see the authors and what they're talking about they think that's what they're, they're also alluding to as well that it's that whole thing the other part of it that always makes me smile and interest me as well is if, if you're supplementing with stuff what are you stopping your body adapting to so are you preventing your body from taking on the adaptation that you're actually training hard to so if we're trying to increase our energy stores, our carbohydrate stores, or you're stuff and you're supplementing with carbohydrates sometimes, you do how is that affecting what the body does in terms of its ability to deal with low levels of carbohydrate, etc. So the training effect of what we're trying to bounce into and then people taking in supplement. So we see that and it always interests me that way when you're looking at that. And again, in this one there's a sufficiency, I think we're going back to that. And what they're trying to see, you know, what seems to be the, the the story here is that with too much it becomes toxic or it's a toxin and then your body can't go and then something else has to happen to deal with what's going in there and, 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 and in fact we're trying what, what I'm reading here etc is then it's the calcium that uh, gets affected and that's what we're, we're seeing mm. that, that their uptake of calcium then goes down which is really mm. quite interesting I think that's really key I was saying at the Physiological Society meet recently of extreme environments um, and there was a consultant presenting down there and they were talking about exactly that when you know people are in intensive care we've always adopted the belief that we should feed them and do what we naturally do but now they're they're starting to reduce doing that and they're seeing more positive and quicker health gains and recovery from situations so um you know when when the body changes state it's not always uh we shouldn't always be following the same things as what we're doing when the body's healthy in a, in a normal state and the ageing process is definitely part of that state and I think we really need to delve mm. more into um, what's happening to our population for because we know we're coming up with there. I suppose yeah. there's a curious mechanistic question here is it's weird and we don't understand why that would be the case but then there's a much more practical outcome here you know we, we know that um, cyclists on the whole don't are, are, are potentially prone to low bond density because they don't have the impact and I suppose a natural uh, strategy against that might be to uh, supplement with uh, more vitamin D uh, I think the, the practical thing you can take from this anyway at, at this point in time because we don't know what it was say the exercise level of these we presume they're just you know normal living people um, the 300 odd people um, how does that interface when you're training hard whether it's weight bearing or not and so on but certainly you would want to be cautious um, based on this uh, on these results and interestingly you're going you know you send non weight bearing part of the conclusion that they're drawing here is to keep Keep a healthy diet, but also keep up your weight-bearing workouts and your exercise. And that's something we did in the first podcast as well. Talking about this is like, think about it. You spend a lot of time non-weight-bearing with them. Right? So how do you actually combat that as well? So think about weight-bearing exercise to ensure that you, yeah. Yeah, you keep your, your bone mineral density up as a cyclist. Hey, sort of sticking to the, the eating and, and, and theme in terms of the nutrition theme, uh, another... Um, article in uh, Cycling News that actually struck me was uh, an article uh, about Yanni Brakovic um, who 
said that he, well, he kind of obviously was part of an interview where he uh, commented uh, about potential eating disorders in the pro peloton. Now, obviously, he was given a 10-month ban um, for a positive test of uh, methylhexamine. Um, and, and, you know, some of that was around, uh, you know, the, he says here that, you know, it's about a poor relationship with food, uh, disordered eating, which became an eating disorder, bulimia. Um, you know, I think I've possibly said before, uh, you know, you know, reading uh, Geraint Thomas's book, which he published after he won the Tour de France, uh, you know, I was particularly struck by the fact that um, I felt that in every single chapter he had mentioned food. And really it was more, it's kind of the, the tone was very much around the lack of uh, food. So, you know, I suspect that... Well, that a lack of food in terms of the food wasn't uh, provided or there wasn't the volume, or just the fact that for the tour and what he was doing in terms of the, the calorific mm. requirements ended up that there was always going to be a deficit so you're just basically hungry the whole time and always thinking about food. Well, obviously, I think there's been a much greater focus on uh, power-to-weight ratio, you know, particularly, you know, uh, pro peloton where, you know, um, races are, are won and lost and on uphill stretches, certainly a, a good number of races anyway. And there's no chance if you've been a GC contender without you being able to, to get up the hill. So, you know, it's a big, it's a big element of, yeah. of the sport. Um, so, I, I, you know, I think it, you know, it, it, there's... there's you could see where it's the perfect um, scenario for people who would be susceptible to a disorder that that would start to manifest itself when there was lots of external pressure um, to be as light as possible and still be obviously functioning, uh, training and racing really hard. I think that's the key, is the training and racing really hard and sometimes as well where people get it really wrong is the reliance just turns completely to what the scales say um, and that reduction and in terms of body mass without always a lot of consideration about the impact that has on subsequent power um, and I think a lot of that is education and education with athletes mm. um, and definitely in you know if we're seeing that in the, the elite fields where, how far is that infiltrated down? Is that happening in our junior athletes? Is it, you know, is it things that we need to be considering educating them on earlier on to try and protect them? Um, I think, uh, you know, uh, certainly from my point of view, I think that is the case. You know, I think we, you know, always are we, let's say, more frequently now anyway, starting to hear some nutritional practices that are adopted within the professional teams. And, um, you know, one of those which has certainly been in vogue most recently is the, um, you know, the carbohydrate periodization. And, and now I think it's quite different for a professional team to be doing this because they will have nutritionists that will be with the riders at all point in time, you know, assessing their energy expenditure and matching that with energy intake and so on. And, you know, been quite careful about adjusting those. For somebody... You know, who's who's not got that level of support? That's going to be extremely difficult, and and comes at huge risk um, of getting it wrong. And we go back again, back to our first podcast where we looked at what's the implication of energy deficit. Well, that 
we, we covered really one paper, which was more specifically looking at bone density. Actually, if you look at it, the health implications of regular energy deficits probably much higher than that. Um, and the reality is probably for the vast majority of these athletes, they're copying the professional peloton. Um, will it help them? Will it actually make a big difference to their performance in terms of some of these nutritional practices? And I very much doubt it. You know, okay, yes, you can be fairly significantly overweight um, and that's going to slow you down. I don't believe that's the type of person we're talking about. We're talking about people who are already lean, who want to be leaner, and that has major um, sort of health implications. And I think that's when you did your interview with uh, Ruth McKean, a nutritionist, that was what was coming through loud and clear in that one as well, is that it's that uh, one of the biggest issues now is, is, is just a calorific deficit and that people just basically not eating enough. Uh, and it was refreshing uh, a couple of weeks ago, it was in the Times, I think, uh, London Times, and it was uh, Brownlee, uh, Johnny Brownlee, and it was a nice piece in that, and it was basically, what is it you eat and stuff, so it was refreshing, and they were saying it's a refreshing to see a professional athlete talking about what they eat, and they basically eat healthily, but if he's out on a big long ride, etc., and he goes past the, the chip shop and he smells chips, he goes, I'm going to have chips tonight, and he'll have chips. So they, you know, it's like, and they don't, which is where you're going to smile now at me, Leslie, because he basically doesn't beat himself up about, I shouldn't have chips, etc. He goes, there's too much time spent worrying about, I shouldn't have that. And we know then, this is what we're always talking about with our athletes, is that, that it, from the immunological point of view, Absolutely. I'm going, it's a treat. It boosts you, it's getting you on stuff. If you do it every night, you're not going to be a world champion. But if you do it every now and again, etc., you know, and his whole concept of maybe eats, you know, well, and it's nice, fast, it's great. And they know what they're doing, etc. And that's what it's about. And I think with the Peloton, it's like there's nutritionists there, there's professional chefs, and they can do, they go, this is what we're going to do. And they measure and, and try and work out what is required. We know all that. Mm. You try and do that at, at home, you need to be really tight and get this exactly right and work really hard. And what happens is a lot of us, we will not have the time to do that because we've got other parts of our day that needs to be looked after, etc. And then that's when it gets a bit scary and, and potentially then you're going into your real it. issues. A really key part of it. If if you're training really hard, you're not a professional athlete. You've got you're juggling so many different things. It becomes it comes down to me your preparation in that. So, you know, if you've had really hard training sessions, you've not prepared your lunch the next day. You get to the stage where you're starving. You try and fill yourself up on anything that's available. You're not necessarily looking at what the calorie content is often. Or, or worse still, they don't eat anything because they can't find what they think they need to eat. Absolutely. Because the diet says that, you know, the nutrition the nutrition strategy is there and it says they have to eat something in particular and they haven't got it. So it's funny, I've seen some posts out there about uh, whatever happened to gluten-free. So I was gluten-free in 2007, I had real issues, etc. and knew nobody. And it was a world champs that I actually, the day before it, I had for my lunch at 12 squeezy gels. There are other gels available, obviously. But that's what I had to have for my lunch because the team manager hadn't uh, got, got in contact with the hotel, etc. And we were in Italy. There was nothing I could eat. I mean, it was really poorly, obviously. And in fact, just to put the whole circle around, Alistair uh, Brownlee was racing that day as well in the juniors in the, it was in the world mountain running. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. So 
So I, I think, you know, clearly, if even with all the level of support that the pro-Peloton gets and, yeah. and you know, uh, they're still eating disorders that yeah. are in there, you know, then, wow, you know, I think that's, that's just a big red flag and I think it's something that we need to consider. And I think we've all got anecdotal stories of friends and colleagues who, who've overdone it and, you know... They, 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 they seem to be going really, really well on a race, and the next thing, it's a huge dive bomb. They get a cold, they're you know they're they're ill for a period of time and everything. And it, yeah, so it's that sort of seesaw, and it, a lot of it's related to um, low energy intake and, and poor practice in terms of eating. Okay, so the final little snippet we're going to cover is just a, a fun one in some respects. Is this? Uh, Supposedly the highest ever VO2 max, I think, for a cyclist. So this is Oscar Svensson, um, a Norwegian cyclist. Um, and I think, you know, when this was first announced, there was certainly scepticism about it, um, about is this a real uh, number, because he recorded 96.7 mils per kilo per minute, which is just massive. Wouldn't we all like something like that? Um, just below yours. A little bit. I didn't quite get there. Um, but again, you know, he, uh, you know, say uh, there has now been published, you know, if you like a track record of his, his measurements, um, you know, from, from teenager and, 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 you know, thus, you know, there's certainly some credibility about that. But I think it's an interesting lead into, I suppose, the concept of so what? You know, high VO2 max, so what? Well, you know, you mentioned it. Obviously, uh, in terms of this, was a story we would, we would talk about in, in the podcast, and, and and it is so what, and the question is always then what you do with it. It's not the size, you know, of the VO two max. It's actually what you can can actually do with it. So my question is always on this one. Then does that equate to uh, increased power, uh, wattages in terms and then ranges throughout, etc. What does it actually equate to? It's fabulous and it's huge and from a, a pure sports science point of view as well you're like how does it happen and how does you get to that so you know it's central versus peripheral you know where, where is this coming from and, and so if we can understand this is just that he's a freak of nature which we know a lot of the elite athletes are you know so that's it's a compliment it's not a, a, a to the guy himself but it's how does it actually get to that so is it is it all peripheral, etc., or is it is it driven by the central and and that's where the interesting bit Leslie wants to come in. And they do talk about that in the article. So they they refer to the mm-hmm. fact that his huge aerobic injury um, provides him with lots of energy, but it doesn't translate into his power on the bike. Mm-hmm. So how functional is that? Mm. He's young as well, at the minute, doesn't he? Yeah, he's only his twenties, so he's yeah. he's quite young. So you know they, we you know although saying that we just have had. Um, you know, exactly. some you know, in, in Tour de France and Vuelta, we've yeah. you know, and we can kind of see if you like young cyclists really doing very very well in in, in sort of the largest um, uh, cycling events and uh, in the world and, and beating the older guys. So um, I think you know certainly. I suppose from a physiological point, it's quite interesting uh, to try and work it out. Mm-hmm. Um, how how does he manage to do that? Um, it's all about the translation, you know. What does that mean when it comes to... And, and I think some people get fixated by this. I know my personal view is if I have a cyclist in the lab, am I interested really in measuring their VO2 max per se? And I'm, 
Probably not. I'm a lot more interested in power. And I suppose my argument for that is that most cyclists and most normal people and coaches even can relate power to speed and performance. Whereas mils per kilo per minute of oxygen consumed, does that, how does that translate to performance? It, it, indirectly, on average, yes, it does. But it doesn't, whereas power is a, a much more, I suppose, functional thing. You know, power into the pedals means faster. Yeah, I suppose scientists were interested in that top end and max in terms of physiological that we can measure. But again, I'm really interested in how much of it can be used. So if it's, you know, if it's up at nearly 100, you know, how much of the percentage can he actually use of that uh, when he's topping out, etc.? And that's what I, you know, so some of us may have, have lower VO2s in terms of max level, we put it performance level, that we put it, but we can work at a much higher percentage than the, the guy or the girl with status, etc. And that's what gets really interesting. And then if you're looking at how he has got or what's happened that he's got to that, is there anything that can be translated or looked at to see is it, as I say, centrals and peripherals or something going on that then we can look at with other athletes to say just to improve that. And to me, it's always... Uh, um, it's it's the peripheral stuff that we start looking at and how that comes through. That's a personal opinion, is because if you can get enough, get enough oxygen through then, but it's, it needs to be used. Mm. So that's where it gets really interesting. I'd like to, you know, if they could find out way, if there's a way to find that out with them, it's like, well, okay, I know there's certain ways they could do that just to work out where it is, and that mm. becomes interesting, translatable, and then to see if that then increases, as we say, some of those markers that would be more interested in in terms of the power. You know, I'm just laughing to myself because I think we're all talking about VO2 max possibly in a slightly negative way because we're all older now and obviously we know that it does decline with age so maybe that's why we're not really interested in it anymore <laughs> Maybe, maybe but anyway, it'll be interesting to see how he develops and, uh, and you know, in terms of his competitive uh, performance Yeah, and again, just as a sports scientist like we've all, you know we know it's not the gold standard that it contributes, etc. You know, but as we move forward in ten years' time, we may not even consider you know maybe mm -hmm. other measures that, and as we develop technology, etc. To then be able to say this is what we, you know. So with, with all our athletes, as you get to know them and you work with them for a while and you know some tests, and you know that within the lab which tests are the crucial tests for their performance translation out onto the road or onto the mountains, etc. And it may not be anything to do with you. It may be a zone or something. You're seeing that changing going, right, off that we know we can predict that the performance isn't going to, is going to increase or decrease. Hmm. That's, and I think that's the, the benefit of, of, of the sports, the experienced sports scientists, working with experienced sports science and getting to, and, and, and knowing their athletes as well. It's so, a combination of performance and science. I suppose the takeaway message is, we know that high is good, um, but it's not the be all and end all. No. Well, folks, that's us come to the end of another episode of the Cycling Science Podcast. Um, so thanks very much for listening. Of course, I'd like to particularly thank uh, my special guest in this episode, uh, Dr. Michael Botling, um, for his insight into the development of, um, of the WaveCell helmet. Of course, I'd like to thank my two co-hosts, Professor Geraint Florida-James and Dr. Leslie Ingram both from Edinburgh Napier University. And uh, remember that if you've got any questions that you'd like us to answer, 
please get in touch. Um, you can do that through our contacts page on our website, cycling-science.com, or directly email us at podcasts, no, it's podcast, singular, at cycling-science.com. If you would like uh, personal consultancy or coaching advice from me, Professor Richard Davison, please contact me at uh, Richard at cycling-science.com Thank you very much to our overall supporters for the Cycling Science Podcast. That is the University of the West of Scotland, uh, my employers, and Edinburgh Napier University. Thanks very much for listening to the Cycling Science Podcast, episode number four, Crash Bang. And... uh, We look forward to you joining us um, for episode number five.